Welcome to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of eViral Hepatitis Review. Our guests today are both from the Toronto Center for Liver Disease at the University of Toronto, where Dr. Jordan Feld is a hepatologist and an associate professor of medicine, and Dr. Lizette Krasenberg is a physician and PhD candidate. And we're here to discuss how the effects of hepatitis C cure can impact clinical situations. Eviral Hepatitis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences and AbbVie. Learning objectives for this program include describe the challenges on the timing of treatment for HCV patients with decompensated cirrhosis who are on the wait list for liver transplantation, and summarize which patients with cured HCV should remain under surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma. Dr. Jordan Feld has disclosed that he has received consulting fees for contract research and as a principal investigator for Gilead Sciences, AbbVie, Merck & Company, and Fujifilm Waco Diagnostics USA. He has also received consulting fees from Ananta Pharmaceuticals and Contravir Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Lizette Krasenberg has disclosed that she has no relationships with any product or service relevant to today's discussion. Both our guests have indicated that they will not be referencing the unlabeled or unapproved uses of any drugs or products. Dr. Feld, Dr. Krasenberg, thank you both for joining us today. Thanks, Bob. Glad to be here. Thank you, Bob. I'm happy to be here, too. In your newsletter issue, doctors, you you analyzed the recent evidence on what curing hepatitis C infection can mean to patients with hepatic as well as non-hepatic HCV complications. What I'd like to do today is take things a step further and discuss how that new information can impact clinical practice. So take us to the clinic, if you would, please, Dr. Krasenberg, and start us out with a patient scenario. Today, we're going to be talking about a 55-year-old Caucasian male who visits the outpatient liver clinic to discuss his treatment options for his HIV infection. He has a history of decompensated cirrhosis with encephalopathy and ascites, for which he takes lactulose and diuretics. Currently, he has a MELT score of 19 with a creatinine of 1.53, a bilirubin of 0.94, an INR of 1.6, and a sodium of 135. He is also listed for a liver transplantation. His additional laboratory values are an albumin of 2.7 and an ALT of 32. His baseline hemoglobin is 13.3 and a platelet count of 83. His BMI is 24, and he has a genotype 1A infection with an HIV RNA of 6.2 log. He receives Savosbavir Valpatosphere plus a weight-based ribavirin for 12 weeks, and he then achieves SVR. So a patient on the liver transplant wait list. Uh, That brings up the question of how a clinician can determine the right timing for treatment with DAAs. Specifically, in a patient like the one that Dr. Krasenberg just described, Should that person be treated for hepatitis C now, or should he be transplanted first? Dr. Feld, what's your opinion? This is always a challenge when we see patients presenting with very advanced liver disease. They're the ones that we want to treat the most because they have the most benefit, but they're also challenging to treat. They don't always do well with therapy, and sometimes they might actually be better off by getting a transplant first. And the reason for that is our worst scenario is where we cure someone and they end up in a situation where they don't improve clinically. And a useful tool for trying to figure this out, whether you should treat someone now or transplant them first, is a score called the BE3A score. It's a pretty simple tool which takes into account the body mass index, the absence of encephalopathy and ascites, 
the level of the ALP and albumin. And for each of those five things, you get one point. And the score is useful if you have a very high score, it suggests that you're likely to do well with therapy. And if you have a very low score, it suggests that you would be better off with a transplant. And I think it's most useful for patients with a very low score where you can say, really, they're unlikely to improve and a transplant would be better first. And in this particular patient, the only thing he would get a point for is having a BMI in the normal range. BMI is 24. And all of the other things, he would get no points. So his total score would be one. And a score of zero or one on this score indicates a very low probability of improvement to getting back to compensated cirrhosis if he is treated successfully. And so he is someone that would have a high likelihood of either ending up in so-called meld purgatory, where his meld is too low to get a transplant, but he still has a poor quality of life because of decompensated cirrhosis, or to actually have an even worse outcome of not surviving. So it really has a low chance of improving. And in this case, it might have been preferable to defer treatment until after a liver transplant. And Dr. Grassenberg, as you told us in the patient presentation, this individual was treated and he achieved SVR. So my question is, did he benefit from achieving SVR, or did he end up in that meld purgatory that Dr. Fell just talked about? So in this patient, his MELT score indeed improved. So his MELT score before was 19, and now it dropped down to 14. But this patient remained on diuretics for his societies and lactulose for his encephalopathy. So he's no longer transplant eligible based on his laboratory scores. However, he still has a poor quality of life. And I think that is precisely what is meant with the MELT purgatory. So in this patient, he likely would have been better off receiving a transplant first and then followed by treatment for his HCV. So with his initial MELT score of 19, he would do well on treatment. But when you would calculate this BE3A score, with a score of only one, he was predicted that he had a very low likelihood of clinical improvement. BE3A scoring, just how widespread is its use, Dr. Feld? Well, this is a relatively new score. It was published in the journal Gastroenterology last year, and I think it's quite useful because before that, we were struggling with just using the MELD score. And most guidelines say that if the MELD is above 18 or above 20, that you may consider transplantation first, but the, the BE3A score quantifies things a little more clearly. Where it's most useful, though, is in people with a low score. So people with a score of zero to one, where you would then target them for transplant first. For people with higher scores, it's a little bit less predictive and also fewer patients fall into that category. What about someone whose BE3A score lands him in the middle with a score of, say, two or three? What would you advise for patients like that, doctor? They're unfortunately the trickiest group, particularly with this score, because when you look in the study, about half the patients that had a score of two or three improved. So it's somewhat like flipping a coin. And really, at that point, I think it's very important to have a careful conversation with your patient to just make sure that they're very clear on the potential for benefit. Most people are hoping they can avoid a transplant and improve and get back to a good quality of life. And obviously, that's, that's what we all want to see, but it doesn't happen in everyone. So they need to understand that there's a risk of meld purgatory if they go forward with treatment. But they also need to understand the risks associated with transplant if they opt for that option. And it really is something that needs to be discussed at, at the individual level in those intermediate patients, whereas for those with a score of zero to one, you can say transplant first, and those rare patients with a score of four or five, you can say, let's move ahead with treatment. But unfortunately, a lot of people fall into that intermediate category. 
One final question on BE3A scoring. You've pointed out both its positives as well as its limitations. What improvements would you want to see to make it a more effective prognostic tool? So as I mentioned, Bob, the real utility of this score right now is to identify people who are unlikely to benefit from early treatment and would be better having a transplant first. I think what we would really like is to have a score that could more definitively identify those who are going to benefit and would do well. And one big caveat to this score is that it's using a relatively short follow-up time. So the, the study looked at this score, looked at the improvement at 36 weeks after the start of treatment, which for many of the people who received 24 weeks of treatment, this would just be 12 weeks post-treatment, so just at the SBR time point. And we do know that people may continue to improve. Now, the, the, the improvement probably plateaus at about a year or a year and a half after cure, but certainly at the time point that the score was developed, we may not have seen maximal improvement. So it would be nice to have a score that went out with longer follow-up and potentially gave us the opportunity to identify people who continue to have slow but steady improvement and ultimately do get out of meld purgatory and live a good and productive life after viral cure. Well, thank you for that case and discussion, doctors. And we'll return with Dr. Jordan Feld and Dr. Lizette Grassenberg from the University of Toronto in just a moment. Thank you for listening to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. If you're unfamiliar with our program, we're a combination newsletter and podcast continuing educational series. We're available online without cost or prerequisite. Eviral Hepatitis Review newsletters are published every other month. Each issue focuses on a specific area of importance in the care of patients with viral hepatitis and is authored by an expert clinician who reviews the current literature and provides commentary. In the month following each newsletter, a case-based podcast discussion, like the one you've been listening to, brings that expert perspective to translating the new information into clinical practice. Continuing education credit for eViral Hepatitis Review is jointly provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. For more information about eViral Hepatitis Review, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. Welcome back to this eViral Hepatitis Review Podcast. We've been speaking with Dr. Jordan Feld and Dr. Lizette Krasenberg from the Toronto Center for Liver Disease at the University of Toronto about how the effects of HCV cure can impact other clinical situations. So let's continue in that vein, if you would please, Dr. Krasenberg, with another patient scenario. So the second patient of today is a 60-year-old male, and he is also seen at the outpatient liver clinic. He has achieved SVR by treatment with DAAs. Prior to his treatment, he had a FIP4 score of 3.73 and a liver stiffness measurement of 15.3 and no clinical manifestations of cirrhosis. After achieving SVR, it was recommended that he would continue with ultrasound surveillance for his HCC with imaging for every six months. He is now referred back to primary care provider for follow-up. Six months later, the PCP arranges for a fiber scan to see if there has been an improvement. The repeat liver stiffness measurement is six, and based on this result, the PCP informs the patient that he no longer has cirrhosis and thereby can stop his ultrasound surveillance. Three years later, the patient is referred back to you with a 6.3 centimeter HCC. An interesting situation that's got to be confusing for many patients, and I'm imagining for many clinicians as well. Key question, why did this patient develop hepatocellular carcinoma if he was no longer cirrhotic? Dr. Feld? 
Well, I think the point is, is that he is not no longer cirrhotic. Despite the improvement in his liver stiffness measurement and other lab and clinical parameters, this patient clearly had evidence of cirrhosis before treatment. And in terms of liver cancer surveillance, really the paradigm is once cirrhotic, always cirrhotic. So the improvement in the fiber scan doesn't mean that he doesn't have cirrhosis anymore. It just means that his liver is less stiff. And some of that is actually due to reduction in inflammation from getting rid of the the virus in the liver. There may also be some regression of the fibrosis, but some of the other architectural changes that happen in liver with cirrhosis likely never improve even after viral cure. And the problem with that is it means that anyone that has cirrhosis before treatment, although their risk goes down with cure, it's not eliminated. Conveniently, we can use some tools to try to identify people that still need surveillance because sometimes it can be tricky to figure out if someone even has cirrhosis or not. And some nice data have shown that if you use a FIB4 score above 3.25, which he had prior to treatment, then surveillance after viral cure is important and likely to be cost-effective. And for those with scores below that value, that surveillance probably is not cost-effective. And unfortunately, at least so far, we don't have any data that show that improvement in any of these parameters, whether it's fiber scans, FIB4, or any of the other blood tests, really can identify people who can stop surveillance. Hopefully, with time, we will get better at being able to identify those who are at low enough risk to stop surveillance. But for now, every patient needs a determination of fibrosis and the presence of cirrhosis before starting treatment. And for those that do have cirrhosis before treatment, surveillance needs to be continued post-SVR. We don't know what kind of incorrect information prompted the PCP to tell a patient that he was no longer cirrhotic, but we do know there's a whole world of information out there, some of it factual, some of it wishful thinking, some of it completely fictitious, that patients are accessing. Uh, In your practice, doctors, have you found that patients are coming to you with questions based on misinformation? Bob, I think that's an important point that there is unfortunately a lot of misinformation out there. And we've certainly had a number of patients come back and ask us whether there is any chance that direct acting antivirals actually cause liver cancer. And this was originally raised from some information in the medical literature, which was then, I think, misinterpreted a little bit in the lay press. Dr. Krasenberg, your thoughts. Dr. Felt just raised an important issue. We know that DAAs allow for treatment of sicker and also older patients compared to the previous treatment of interferon-based therapy. And we know these are both risk factors for the development of HCC. This could explain that the first reports from the DA era report higher rates of HCC compared to the interferon era, especially since the treatment with DA started for the most sick patients. However, now we have large, well-controlled studies taking into account baseline factors, and that shows no increase of HCC upon treatment with DAAs. And this is clear evidence from multiple studies, and SVR still reduces the risk of HCC. I want to go back to something you focused on in your newsletter issue, and that's comorbidities in people who are cured of hepatitis C. Uh, A patient with diabetes, for example, is that condition likely to improve once a patient is cured of HCV? It's an important point, Bob. Many people forget that hepatitis C affects a lot more than the liver. This is a virus that has a lot of systemic complications associated with it, and one of the most important is diabetes. People with hepatitis C have a much higher risk of diabetes, and when we cure the hepatitis C, there's now very clear evidence that you reduce the risk of developing diabetes. 
Unfortunately, it's less clear that in those that already have diabetes that it will significantly improve or disappear. But the real relevance of that is that by reducing the incidence of new diabetes, we actually now have clear data that just curing hep C reduces the risk of heart attack and stroke in the population, even after controlling for other risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And this really makes the case for treating everyone and not only those with advanced liver disease. Well, thank you, doctors, for bringing us today's cases and discussion. I've got one more question. It's a future-oriented question, and I'm going to direct it to you, Dr. Feld. I want to ask, what do you see happening over the next few years in the area of HCV? The progress has been truly remarkable in the hepatitis C field to be able to go from discovering a virus just 25 years ago to now being able to cure it in almost everyone with very short, well-tolerated therapy is quite an achievement. And some have come to the conclusion that hep C is done, that we really have, have done all we need to do. But unfortunately, there's still lots of work to do. The World Health Organization has set ambitious targets to reduce the number of new hepatitis C infections by 80% and hepatitis C-related mortality by 65% by the year 2030. And to reach these ambitious goals, we're going to have to do a lot more than we're doing. We're going to have to be very aggressive about screening to try to identify the large number of people living with hepatitis C who remain undiagnosed. But I think it's important that many of the outcome data that we highlighted today are going to need to continue to be generated. We need to really show that curing people really does lead to improved health outcomes that's going to be critical for payers to continue or in some cases to start covering the cost of hepatitis C therapy without any restrictions. And also, we'll have to continue to take excellent care of those who we do identify and cure. So we have to make sure that we do our fibrosis assessments before we treat people. And for those with cirrhosis, that we keep them under surveillance so that we don't see liver cancer showing up years after viral cure. And it's nice to have these simple cutoffs like the Fib4 that we discussed at 3.25 that allows to be able to identify people who need to remain under surveillance. So I think our work is still cut out for us, but certainly nice to be at this position where we have remarkably effective tools that will hopefully get us to hep C elimination. Thank you for sharing your insights, doctor. Let's wrap things up now by reviewing today's key takeaway messages in light of our learning objectives. So our first learning objective, the timing of HCV treatment in patients with decompensated cirrhosis who are on the wait list for liver transplant. The key takeaway points, Dr. Feld. Well, our first case highlighted the difficulties in determining the right timing of hepatitis C treatment in patients who present with already decompensated cirrhosis. And the key points that we tried to stress here are that when you're making this decision, that it's important to remember that some patients will actually benefit by deferring treatment until after transplant. And although traditionally we've tried to use things like the MELD score, this new score that we discussed, the BE3A score, is one that can really help identify those who would benefit from waiting until after a transplant before receiving treatment. For people with intermediate scores with this new score, unfortunately, it still becomes an individual decision, and it's really important to have a good discussion with your patient to understand the risks and benefits to make a decision about how to proceed. And our other learning objective, which patients who are cured of HCV should remain under surveillance for hepatocellular carcinoma? Dr. Krasenberg? So our second case demonstrated that the risk for NHEC remains even if the tests pose as VR are no longer showing cirrhosis. So the key points to remember when deciding on whether or not a patient should remain in follow-up are that for the purpose of HCV surveillance is when a patient has cirrhosis, he always has cirrhosis. 
and FibroScan results do improve post-SVR. However, that could not be seen as a patient no longer being cirrhotic. APRI and FIP4 are simple scores that can help determine who needs post-treatment HCC surveillance. And most importantly, DAs do not lead to an increased risk of HCC. From the Toronto Center for Liver Disease at the University of Toronto, Dr. Jordan Feld, Dr. Lizette Krasenberg, thank you both for participating in this eViral Hepatitis Review podcast. Thank you very much, Bob, for having us. We really enjoyed our time. It was really a pleasure, Bob. Thanks a lot. For eViral Hepatitis Review, I'm Bob Musker. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at eviralhepatitisreview.org. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the eViral Hepatitis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME and CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been developed for primary care physicians, gastroenterologists, infectious disease specialists, OBGYNs, physician assistants, nurse practitioners, and nurses, and other clinicians diagnosing or managing patients with viral hepatitis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the accreditation requirements and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education, ACCME, through the joint providership of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credit. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuous nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute of Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eViral Hepatitis Review via email, please go to our website, eviralhepatitisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Eviral Hepatitis Review is supported by educational grants from Gilead Sciences Incorporated and AbbVie Incorporated. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.